If you will, take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. Last week, uh, I shared the first part of this. Today, we'll end it, and um, Pastor Marty will be back with us soon. If you're new with us, my name is Jim Jackson. I'm the family pastor. Just happy to be with you uh, today. Last week, I uh, started out with, if you'll look at the name of the title is, it's just a pre-check flight list. If you've ever flown with anyone in a smaller plane or if you so happen to see the cockpit whenever you are getting into a, a bigger plane, the pilot always, it doesn't matter how often he has flown or how well he knows what he's doing, he always has a checklist and he goes through that checklist before he takes off flying. He wants to make sure he doesn't leave out anything. Well, if you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians, it was not necessarily the most encouraging letter that Paul ever wrote. He wrote it to a church that was in some serious troubles. And so he corrects much of what they have been doing. And when he comes to the end of the letter, it's like he has this, again, this checklist. Just maybe one more time, Paul says, and if you'll look at it, he says this, that you are to be watchful. You are to stand firm in the faith. You're to act like men. You're to be strong. And everything that you do, it should be governed by love. And so I want to talk about those last things this morning. And I want to begin with this particular one where it says, act like men. And so, ladies, you're not off the hook. Because this particular phrase is not just necessarily talking to men. It was a phrase that meant grow up. It means be mature. It means act like a grown up. Act like a grown man. Act like a grown woman. And I'll help you and me for a moment kind of see where he's coming from. If you will, keep your finger there. Turn to the first book in the Bible to Genesis, if you will, chapter 3. Many of you know the creation story. And here in the creation story, as it goes along, God has created man, and he gives man something to do. And you might have heard this before, but he gives man a few things to do. He gives him a will to obey. God's will, he gives his will to obey. And that's what you and I have. You and I have God's will to obey. He gave us a work to do. For Adam, it was to what? Till the garden and to do a work. And he gave Adam a woman to love. Now, if you're a lady here, you might, well, what about me? Well, he's given you as well. He's given you his will to obey, a work to do. It's clear in Scripture for women, your role. He has clearly given that. And if you're single, he's given others that you are to love and care for. If married, a man, a family to take care of. And just for a few moments, I would encourage no amening if you're a spouse in here, like no amening or elbowing for the next little bit, all right? Because you might have some opportunity, but don't do it, okay? Just don't go over there. And so if you know what happened is God gave Adam a command. It was like the most perfect world. There was only one rule. And why is that? If you're a fifth and sixth grader, you've heard this for the past few weeks. He gave one rule because God loves freedom. He loves for you and I to live freely. But he had one rule in the garden. That was don't eat of this particular tree. 
And as you well know, what happened, if you will, in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So growing up, I used to always think Adam must have been somewhere else in the garden taking care of it. But right here, you know this, he was right there with her. In fact, what he should have done is he should have stepped up and got in between, right? The serpent and Eve. But yet he didn't. Now, just for a moment before we go any further, I I know you've probably thought these thoughts. And I know this is not what it's going to be like. But I've always had thoughts what it's going to be like for Adam in heaven. I've always had this thought of all the men who are in heaven lined up to have their turn with Adam. I th- I know that's not how it's going to be, but I've always thought, like, I wonder if that's going to be. And so I've, I think I have a more correct view. I think God has a safe house for Adam in heaven uh, because of what he did. And what did he do that day? He did nothing. Adam was passive when Adam should have stepped up and fulfilled his God-given responsibility, he was just passive. And the truth is, that has passed on to all of us at some level in all of us, male and female, of when it comes to the things of God, we can, if not watchful, we can become very passive. In fact, on Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings, on Thursday mornings, there's both a men and a women. On Wednesday nights, both men and women are going through these two books, Let Men Be Men and Let Women Be Women. In the, in the men's, there's this one particular chapter that says this, Some men become irresponsible, negative, distant, complacent, or act like Peter Pan men. Now, I've been called a lot of names in my life. Never call me Peter Pan, okay? Like, I'll go to any extinct. Just don't, don't do that, okay? That's like the bottom of the barrel for me. But a Peter Pan man. And so we ask this question, all these have something in common. And all of them that is in common is they are the default. If we don't watch out as both men and women, we will become passive, in the things of God. And so what Paul is saying here is that you and I are to act like men. We are to be mature and to grow. And so if you will, back in 1 Corinthians, flip to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll start in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3, 1. So you know this checklist, he has addressed it lengthy, in lengthy ways throughout the book of 1 Corinthians And so here's a particular area he's been talking about when it says to act like men. Starting chapter 3, verse 1, but I, brothers. So just right off, you and I know he's talking to those he believes are true believers. So they are true believers, and he says to them, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. Uh, Some five years later, 
they are still not ready to receive solid food where, as they should have, which just honestly is a good time just to say that age does not guarantee maturity in Christ. Just because you are getting older doesn't mean you are maturing in Christ. And I say that for me more than anybody. It's not a guarantee just as you get older that you become mature in Christ. You and I must put some effort into it. And so he says, I could not address you, verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And so whenever he talks to them and he says, I can't talk to you as spiritual people, I guess I'd have a question for us. And you just answer it like, would you say that you are a spiritual person? Or, or I might ask it like this. As a believer, would you say that you are a holy person? So when we hear things like that, we kind of like maybe draw back and go like, well, I don't want to come right out and just say that. But here's, here's the truth of it. You and I in Christ are both positionally and to be practically these things. So let me explain for a minute. When he says a spiritual people, he's first talking about that in Christ, positionally, you and I, as believers, are spiritual people. So if you wanted to talk about, like, are you a holy person? Well, positionally, in Christ, you and I are holy people. But here's the other part of it. We are to be practically spiritual people. We are to be practically living holy lives. It means that if we choose to, as a Christian, we can practically live unholy lives. And so here's kind of the thing. Your position in Christ enables you. My position in Christ enables me to live a spiritual life, to live a holy life. It gives me the ability to do so. In fact, if you will, keep your finger there. Go, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It's in your notes. If, you, if I lose you or I'm going too fast, that's the reference. If you can't find it or don't find it right now, you can go back. But in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says this in another one of his letters. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And here's what I want you to hear. He says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So back up to that phrase, work out your own salvation. It is not saying you work for your salvation, right? You don't work for it. He is saying work it out. It is literally a picture of a miner who goes down in a mine shaft and he mines or he works out what is in that mine. Like he's working out the gold, he's working out the silver, the copper. He is going down working. And so Paul is saying that when it comes to our own growth in Christ, it is not just that we are positionally, but you and I practically, what? 
We are practically to be actively in our obedience, in our walk with God. We are mining these things that are in us out. We're bringing them to the surface. We're living these truths out. So he's saying that you and I, because of our position in Christ, we can practically do these. So back in 1 Corinthians 3, what's Paul talking to them about? He's talking to them about their spiritual eating habits. They could not take much more than just the elementary things that had been taught to them. And so for like an infant believer, they have to be spoon-fed, and rightfully so. But he is saying to them, by now, you should be growing in your appetite. You should be growing in your habits. You should be growing in your spiritual eating habits of the things of God. Not new truths. Hear that? You and I are not looking for new truths, are we? There are no new truths. What's in Scripture is sufficient for you and I. We're not looking for new truths. What are you and I looking for? We're to be more looking for the detail and the depth of the truth and in how we apply it. And so what he's saying to us, listen, as a believer, a follower of Christ, as a person who is in Christ, you are to be what? Act like men. You are to be growing. You are to be maturing in this. And the thing is, you've heard this statement before, if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. And the same thing when it comes to Scripture, that like there are things in Scripture that are kind of challenging. And yet you and I are to what? We're to be diving into it. We're to be growing into it. We're to be learning. We're to be applying it. We're to be continually growing in our walk with the Lord. In fact, the late Dr. Howard Hendricks said this, If you stop learning today, you stop growing tomorrow. It doesn't matter what your age or where you are in life. It is a continually a growing thing. In fact, I put it there in your notes, if you will. 1 Timothy 4.7 on the left side from the Phillips translation. And if you remember Kathy Herndon, she often would quote from the Phillips translation. Remember that? She would always preface like the reference and then from what translation? And I'm like, I never said this to her. But it's like, you could quote from anything. I, I, I don't know what it says. Like, that's amazing that you can do it from that. And she would quote often from the Phillips, and it says this. The latter part of that verse, Paul is saying this. Take time and trouble to keep yourself spiritually fit. Take time and trouble to keep yourself spiritually fit. In fact, I don't know about you if you are a goal-oriented person. Like, you set goals and you go for those. Uh, I, I would caution and then encourage maybe to add to it a little bit. The caution is if you're a goal person, oftentimes you might reach your goal and then you reach it and you get bored because it's like I reached that thing and like I worked hard and I, I reached it and now I, I have nothing else to do. So you might find this interesting. I did that no one 
after winning the Nobel Prize, made any significant impact with their life. After they reached a thing, the Nobel Prize, like this is working hard to get to that. After that, no more did they add anything else. They had reached a goal, but they didn't keep going. So what I would add to it is that your goal would be what? Growth. Because growth will never in this life come to a place that you can go like, I've reached it. You and I have to honestly and constantly be thinking and in our prayers and in our discipleship to have this mentality of, I still have places in my life that I must grow. You and I must continually grow. If you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11 tells us something else. He talks again, Paul talks again in this kind of deal of being a child. He says in verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I gave up childish ways. So he's saying, hey, I I used to be a child as well, but I've grown up. I'm growing up. If you will, I want you to look on the left-hand side. There is a quote that for me for the past few years has been um, very good for me personally in my own maturity. I would write next to this quote, growth means... So I'm going to add that. Growth means that repentance is turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance must be enlarged. And so I would say for me personally, a definition, a goal, a continual area of growth in my life, if I'm going to mature in Christ, is my area of repentance. And it's in this area. That as I know more of my God through His Scriptures, I am learning what? More about myself. And I am learning more about my sin. And the recognition of it, repentance is not a one-time, but it's a continual part of my own maturity in Christ and yours as well, that we continually grow in repentance. Here's a third one, if you would, in 1 Corinthians 14. Just flip over one more, verse 20. He mentions a child one more time. And he says in verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, Be infants in evil. In other words, when it comes to evil things, I would have you to be like, don't know about those things. Stay away from those things. You don't need to know about those things to be mature. Like, stay, be innocent with those things. But in your thinking, when it comes to your thought life, you and I are to be mature. In fact, On your notes, there's a little fill-in. You can fill this in. It would say something like this. God enables what He commands 
Therefore, accept your God-given role and responsibilities. Another way of saying maturity is that you and I realize God has given us specific roles and responsibilities in life and that we are to take those responsibly. We are to take every one of them seriously and we're to be living those things out. And so he says, hey, listen, one more time after I've talked to you all through this letter, one more time, act like men. In other words, continually mature in your walk. Here's the fourth one. It says to be strong. If you know, again, anything of 1 Corinthians, he has covered for them a particular area of liberty that they had in Christ they had to be careful with. And here's what it was. So many of them, as they grew up, they would sacrifice to false idols and false gods. For those who became believers... Those things that were sacrificed, like that meat, it could be sold, but it was kind of at the reduced rate. It was like, here's the cheap meat at the you know, supermarket. And yet, for those who were becoming believers, young believers, when they would see a mature believer eating something that had been sacrificed to idols, because for a mature, they, they realized this, there's no idols. There's nothing other than God. So this was... This was nonsense, and so that really didn't contaminate that. And yet, though, for a new believer, they would see that and go like, hey, that was sacrificed to idols. We shouldn't be eating that. And so Paul is saying to the mature believer, hey, listen, you have liberty, but don't use your liberty to cause someone else to stumble. And so he goes on to say, listen, I'll not eat that. If I know that it causes someone to stumble, I will not. I will abstain from that. I will be self-controlled in my liberties. And the truth is, you and I know this. You and I have liberties in Christ, but they must be governed with self-control. Self-control. So when he's talking about be strong, he's talking about in the area of exercising your self-control. So I want you, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verses 24. It's interesting that Paul, of all the writers of the New Testament, the Spirit of God moved on him to write Galatians, right? Because the fruit of the Spirit, one of them is what? Self-control. And if anyone wrote anything more about self-control, I do not know. Paul wrote more about self-control in the New Testament than any other writer. And here, he once again really hammers down on it, starting in verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? There, there was no participation awards in this race. Only one one. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as beating the air. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be 
disqualified. And so Paul probably has in mind that every three years in Corinth, there were these games that were played. And, you know, I always wonder about Paul. He's always talking about runners and athletes. I always wonder, like, when he was younger, was he an athlete? Or did he ever want to be one? Or, or he just liked to watch, you know, Sunday afternoon, you know, sports? I don't know. But he's always talking about the athletes. And so these particular people would know what he's talking about when he's talking about self-control and self-discipline. They would know. Because the contestants in this particular game, they would have to qualify to be in these games. The qualification was that you had to prove that for 10 months, you were on a strict, exercise, disciplined routine. And on the 10th month, wherever you lived, you had to come to Corinth so that the people like the referees of the games could literally watch you for a whole month as you did your regimen of exercises and your training and how you ate. And so it wasn't just the race you would uh, disqualify in. If you could not prove that you trained correctly, you could be disqualified. And so Paul has this uh, imagery in mind that, hey, listen, there's a strict discipline that you have to do. And so here's when he's saying our attitude should be what? It is to run in such a way that we would win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Self-control, you know what that means? It means moderation, not given to access, uh, self-restrained. Uh, and before you think that is legalism, hear me once again. Paul wrote about self-control more than anybody else. And he reminds you and I, listen, part of being a believer and the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, that the Spirit of God lives in you, is that you have self-control. That you have this self-control. In verse 25, the second part of it, they do not receive a perishable wreath, but we they receive, I'm sorry, they receive a perishable wreath. It was just a, a bunch of branches, probably off a pine tree just rolled together. It would fade in no time. But he's saying, but the one that we go for is imperishable. Let me just read it to you. From First Peter, he says this. He says, our inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. In other words, you and I, we're running a race in this life, and we're not doing it to gain our salvation, are we? No. We are doing it because we are believers. These athletes, they would have their eye not only on, like, the goal, but they would always have their eye on, like, the emperor. Like, they are running for the king of this particular area. And so they're always looking to the king with one eye, like, I'm running to please him. Uh, they're also running for their countrymen. You see this in the Olympics, like when they're running, they'll say things like, I'm doing this for my people back home. I'm doing this for my countrymen. So you and I, we're not only running this race for the glory of God, but we're doing it what? For the good of others. But these people are not only doing that, they're running this race for, honestly, the joy of competing 
and accomplishing such an honorable task. And so for years, I always heard this. You know, I live this life for the glory of God and for the good of others. And just recently, I've added, I live this life for God's glory. I live it for the good of others. And I live it that I can experience the joy of living this life that God has given me. So you and I, we run this race for God's glory, the good of others, and for our joy. In verse, if you will, 26, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not shadow box. In other words, Paul is very intentional. He says, But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control. He actually says it. Some of y'all's translations say this. I make my body my slave. Now, once again, before you start thinking of like when you talk about having self-discipline as legalism, if you will, there's a quote. It's from a particular book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. Pastor Kent Hughes says it in this book. I'll read it to you. Much of the rejection of spiritual discipline is the fear of legalism. For many, spiritual discipline means putting oneself back under the law with a series of rules which no one can live up to. Nothing could be further from the truth. The difference is one of motivation. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalist heart says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and I want to please Him. There is an infinite difference between motivation of legalism and discipline. Paul knew this and fought the legalists bare-knuckled all the way across Asia Minor, never given an inch. Now he shouts to us, Train, discipline yourself to be godly. If we confuse legalism and discipline, we do so to our own soul's peril. In fact, if you really knew, and honestly it's new for me, understanding this word, particular word discipline, it literally means to punch under the eye. And so before you get any weird thoughts about like, here's what he's talking about, He's just simply meaning he is bringing his body, his mind, his emotions. He is bringing them under submission. He is making his body his slave. In other words, an athlete would lead his body, not be led by it. And you and I have to be the same way when it comes to self-control. You and I must not be led by our body's appetites, our emotions, the way we're thinking or feeling, you and I must lead them. And so I would say this, self-control is a gift of the Spirit. Self-discipline are the specific exercises of how one lives out self-control. I'll give you for instance. I've said this many times and you all know this and you get tired of it. But when it comes to reading, for me personally, reading had to become a discipline. I couldn't read. I learned how to read at age 21. And since that time, I have disciplined myself to read 
every day. Every day I read. But here's the thing. To me, it started out as a discipline that now is a delight. It started out as a discipline, and to me it still is, but it has become a delight to me because of the growth I have found from reading God's Word and reading others who follow Christ and hearing their examples. And so the thing is, with every discipline, though, there's a certain amount of pain. And that's why sometimes we kind of push back from that word discipline because there is a, a certain amount of pain. For instance, every morning whenever I have my quiet time, a devotion with God, and I read, there is a particular kind of pain I have to push back, resisting the urge to check the calendar, the weather, my to-do list, someone just text me, uh, whoever's up that early texts me, stop it! No one should be texting that early in the morning, okay? Whoever you are, you know who you are. Anyway, so the deal is like just checking those things. So there's a, a little bit of a pain to resist. Like, no, i got to resist that for this time because this is my time with the Lord and to be able to do these things. So the thing is, it has grown to what I would say this. I can either choose the pain of discipline or I can choose the pain of regret. And I'm telling you, I have regrets in my life. I choose the pain of discipline over the pain of regret. Even in these spiritual things, choose that. Because Paul says this, here's the big reason. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul took it seriously to be strong in the area of self-control and self-discipline. And so we get to our last one, and that is, let all that you do be done in love. In fact, just think of it like this. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be mature, be strong, and in all of these things, temper it. Filter it with love. Because you know, he wrote more about love in 1 Corinthians than anywhere else, right? Chapter 13. If you will, turn to chapter 13. Paul wrote about it. They were realizing they had spiritual gifts and they were being puffed up because one had a gift that the other didn't. I don't know if they actually said this, but he writes about it. I don't know if someone actually said, hey, listen, you're just a nose, and we don't need a lot of noses around here, and so your gift is not that important. And then some people thought, well, my gift isn't that important. And yet Paul's saying, hey, God's given you these things, but you need to temper this thing with love because that's exactly where he talks about after the gifts. He talks about that you must temper all these things with love. And like maybe you've never heard it before, Hear it again. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, 
And I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. In other words, I did a lot of things without love. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, if you will, just go to chapter 14, verse 1. It's almost like he wants to just put at the very end a big crescendo because he says, pursue love. It literally means you are to go on the hunt for it. You are to pursue it and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. Once again, if you will, flip to Philippians chapter 1. Elsewhere, in another letter, Philippians, Paul says to some people how he is praying for them. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, I want to end with this. Paul's telling them how he's praying for them. And here's how you and I should pray, not only for one another, but for ourselves. Because he says in verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound, in other words, overflow more and more. In other words, he's saying, I know that if you don't watch it and if I don't watch it, we'll come to a place where it's like, that's good enough. That's just good enough. And honestly, good enough should be something you and I as a believer should never say. That's just good enough. Paul's saying, I could come to this area and so could you. That you're like, I've loved enough, I've done enough, I've served enough, I've spoken to that person enough, I've given enough, whatever it is. And yet Paul's saying that my prayer for you is this, that your love would not just say good enough, but it would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. In other words, like, get this picture, love is like this river, 
But yet, you know, if a river gets out of its banks, that's called a flood, right? And that's no good. And he's saying, listen, your love needs to have banks. And the banks of that river need to be what? Knowledge and discernment. So that your love is flowing correctly in the right direction to the right people. It needs to have knowledge and discernment. He is saying, I'm praying this for you. That tells you Paul's heart. I am praying that in your watchfulness, in your standing firm for the gospel, in your acting like grown-ups, acting mature, you're accepting your God-given responsibilities and roles, in your being strong, don't be so strong that you like leave love out. He is saying that all these things should be tempered with what? Love for God and love for others. Would you bow your head with me? I just ask that you would think for a moment. As a believer, you're not checking things off to gain merit with God. You know this. You, you as a believer... Your motivation is that you'd glorify God. Good would come to other people. You could experience the joy of living this life. And so you and I take seriously that we're constantly being watchful. And we're constantly making sure we're standing firm in the faith. And we're acting like men and women of God. And that we are exercising self-control in all areas. And we are doing this, tempering it. That our love would bound more and more for God and other people. These things only happen with children of God. My encouragement today is you realize that you without Christ, these are not possible. You see, when you're in Christ, these things are possible. When you're not in Christ, these things are impossible. You can't act these things out. You can't drum them up. You can't add this to a list of do's to please God. The only thing that pleases God that you realize you've sinned against him and that he has made one way to be at peace with you and that's through his son on a cross buried, rose again who is Lord and that you would submit your life to him and so I pray today if God awakens your heart you would trust in what he has done You'd make him your Lord. I still remember at age 21, my prayer. I didn't know how to pray. All I knew is, God, would you be my boss? He changed my life. It was 40 years ago. I have not regretted one single moment.
of God today. If there's one hearing or will hear this later, or maybe they're watching this. They've never submitted to you and they sense you waking their cold, dead heart. I pray that they would respond with what you give them to respond with faith, repentance. God, I pray that for us as your children, help us to take it seriously. Our responsibilities as followers of you and help us, Lord, just with a, a checklist, not to merit anything with you, but Lord, just to make sure we're on the right track, that we're being watchful in all these areas. We're standing in the gospel and nothing else. And that we're being responsible and we're showing self-control and that all these things are done in love. God, enable us. You enable the things that you command us to do. Thank you, because without you we could do nothing. And that is our confession to you this day. We praise you for how good you are to us. Help us to live it and leave this place in a dark world wherever we live or go or work this week. May it be real in our school wherever May it be real before the people we live before. We ask these things in your name. Amen.